ago, a couple in the church were gracious enough to give me two tickets to a baseball game. Now, the only downside was it was a St. Louis game, and they weren't playing the Reds. But at the same time, it's a free baseball game, and you know how I am, and so I said, well, okay, absolutely. And so Hank and I, we began the journey to head to St. Louis, and in the van, uh, the little tire pressure light came on. I didn't even know I had a tire pressure light, I'll be honest with you, I have no idea. Most of the vehicles I've driven, I don't know the tires low until it's flat, that's just the way it is. But this particular van that we have now, amazingly, has a tire pressure light, that was news to me, I didn't know they existed. Maybe some of you are already that advanced, but I, I, I had to look up what it was. I thought the engine was about to explode. I didn't know what was going on. I don't know anything about cars, obviously, and so I, I, I looked it up. I texted Nancy. I said, we've got engine problems. Something's going on. I'm not going to make it to St. Louis. And all it was was tire pressure. I said, all right, I can handle that. I know where there's free air in pockets of 12th and, and Chestnut. I can go there and pull in. And, and so I fill up two of the tires just making sure they were a little bit low, and I I get to the third one, the right <coughs> rear tire, and I start to fill up the tire, and I'm looking around at it, and I thought, well, no wonder the tire pressure light came on. There's something stuck in the tire. You ever been there? It's been gone. It's three and a half hours to say, four. Ah, we're in trouble. So I, I call my buddy Jimmy Morris at Quick Lane there at Parker Ford. I said, Jimmy, I got trouble. I said, I got, a, I got something in my tire. He just immediately said, bring it in. So I take it to Quick Lane, pull in there, and, and they look at the van and look at the tire, and, and their tire guy comes to me and he says, there's a 50-50 chance the patch won't hold. It was intense. I was just telling you, it was really intense. all game started now in three hours and 15 minutes, and I got three and a half hours to go drive. And he said, we can patch it, but it's so close to the wall, it, it may not hold. And so... You know, as anybody would who's driving a vehicle that you're going to try to drive three and a half or four hours to the ball game, and the one that you're temporizing, and I said, 50 50 is not good. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to try that. I, I said, what, what's it going to take to, to, to really fix it? He said, you need a new tire. Okay, so you can't get to the, you can't, by the way, you cannot get to say, I guess you probably could, but it's not wise to try to drive to St. Louis on the spare. You know, it's just not the little one, you know. And you look kind of goofy trying that anyway. So everybody laughs at you down the highway. You know how it is. So anyway, I said, well, all right. We've got to have a new tire. We don't have any stop. <laughs> how long is it going to take? Not long at all. So, all right. So Jimmy and his guys, of course, did, uh, did a great job of uh, replacing the tire. But it was interesting. We finally made it to St. Louis. And wouldn't you know, just as a complete side note, the game was delayed an hour and much to Hank's uh, great joy, the, uh, the Royals came out on top that night. So, just as a complete side note, this is another to do with sermon, all free stuff. My defiant young son, who is a Cincinnati Reds fan to the core, wore a Cincinnati Reds sweatshirt and a blue hat for the Royals to a Cardinals game. <laughs> I was, I'm not willing to do that because I value my life. You know, the, the little kids can get away with that stuff. You know what I'm talking about. But anyway, the, the tire could not be packed. It had to be completely replaced. And it would have if I had not done that. If I had not had the tire replaced, it, it would have led to potentially life-threatening issues later on. 
you have a blowout going down the highway, obviously that can be catastrophic. And so it had to be addressed. Our series that we're in right now is called Character Assassination. And we've been looking at how the holes in our character lead to major problems in life if they're not fixed. Just like having something in a tire and trying to take a trip. Sometimes the holes in our character are very obvious. You see them, everybody else sees them, you know what you're dealing with. But sometimes, sometimes they're a little more subtle. Sometimes it's like air leaking out of the tire. It may not happen all at once. Your life may not crumble all in one fell swoop. But the air is going to leak and continue to do so and maybe cause catastrophic problems if it's not addressed and if it's not fixed. And in many cases, it requires a brand new tire, not just a patch. And so this morning, my prayer for you and for me is as we look at the scripture and we see a potential hole in our character, we see a Bible story, a character in the Bible who refused to fix the tire. And eventually he had a blowout. My prayer is that you and I will say it's time to stop and let Jesus Christ place the tire this morning. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. If you would like to follow along and take some notes, or maybe you say, I didn't bring a Bible this morning, but I, I've got my phone and I've got a Bible app and I'm ready to go, then please go to 1 Samuel 13 there and app on your phone or tablet. You can also, I was having a conversation before the, the uh, service really got started here about the little code that's on the back of the sermon. I'll just, or on the back of the bullet, right? I'll tell you, if you've got a phone with a, with a little scan app, you can scan that. It'll take you immediately to a link that will pull up all of the scripture references, and it will pull up the outline for, for the sermon. If you have the Bible app, maybe you say, I don't have a scan app, but I've got the Bible app. You can log in and then go to tap on live and do a search for Elm Grove, and it will pull up that same link. Just so you know, if you're interested in that, I know some of you brought your Bibles and some of you didn't, and that's fine. Um, and so anyway, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we meet a guy, uh, not for the first time in the scripture, but we meet a guy really, as he begins his reign as king, we meet a guy named Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel. And this story follows the period in which God had set up judges and prophets to really be the guys who, who ruled and, and led Israel. And the people had looked at Samuel, the prophet, uh, and, and they knew that he was going to be hard to replace. And in fact, uh, they knew that his sons were not the replacements that they wanted. And so they demanded king. I, I want to reference a couple of scriptures real quick just to kind of set this up for you. First Samuel chapter 8. Verse 1 says this, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. And then in verse 3, However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you are old, and they agreed, you are old, and your sons do not follow your example. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, as the, just the same as all the other nations have. And then down in verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel. Basically, what he told them was, you don't want a king. Trust me. You have God as your king. He's gracious and loving. You don't want an earthly king. He's going to ruin your life. They said, no, no, no. Look at verse 19. They refused to listen to him. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us. Go out before us and fight our battles. And so they have a king. First Samuel chapter 9 puts it this way. Verse 2. Here's the king they're going to get. Talking about this man who had a son named Saul. An impressive 
There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. He will be the people's choice for king. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, we see some more to say. When he, talking about King Saul, stood among the people, he stood again a head taller than anyone else. He was an impressive looking guy. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, all live the king. Saul was the most impressive guy that they could find. He was the guy everyone thought would be most likely to succeed. The guy everyone would have voted for. And history reveals something far Unfortunately, this man who was popular among the people, who stood out, who had all the physical gifts and abilities that a man could ask for, he would assassinate his character. And the process would begin ruining the nation of Israel for years to come. And in a disastrous decision that we'll see in 1 Samuel 13, that's where King Saul begins his demise. I want to show you this morning the progression of a disastrous decision. Now, many of you know our church was struck by lightning not long ago, and it's it's thrown us kind of off a little bit. We, we can't get the screen down anymore, and so we can't project stuff on there, and and so I, I can't put up the fill-in-the-blank stuff on the bulletin. I know some of you live for that. And, and so here's what I did this morning. Look at the back of the bulletin. I just gave you all the answers. <laughs> Except for two. I gave you, you can't, if you fail this morning, then you're just not paying attention. All right? I gave you, look at it. I gave you all the answers. Now, don't jump ahead. All right? Don't close your Bible. Well, I got the outline already. I'll guess the other two up there. I'll be good enough. You know, that's, that's about 90%. Here's what I'm going to do, all right? I'm not going to give you the first two until the very end. You can't leave. You cannot fall asleep. You can't leave. You can't tune out. You can't check out. I got you right here. So you're going to get all these others just free of charge, but I'm going to make you wait if you want. There's some suspense here. So go ahead and start guessing what they are, and I'll be with you a little bit later in the sermon when you fail at guessing what they are, all right? So the progression of a disastrous decision the first element that we're going to see here is that this progression, this disastrous decision, begins with urgency. Look at verse 1, uh, beginning of verse 1, anyway, of 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul was 30 years old and became king and reigned 42 years over Israel. Now, some of your versions aren't going to have those numbers in there, just so you know. There's dispute over whether or not those numbers are accurate. Uh, are, they, are they exact? Some versions will have it, some versions won't. Don't, don't worry about all that stuff. It just tells you he was a king of Israel and he reigned for a long time. In verse 2, this is where we're really getting into the story today. He chose 3,000 men from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Big Match and in Bethel's hill country. And 1,000 were with Jonathan, that's his son, in Gibeon of Benjamin. He sent the rest of the troops away. He basically sent them all, each to his own team. Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison that was in Gibeon, and the Philistines heard him. So Saul, the king, blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. He's announcing the victory. And all, the, and all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison, and Israel is now, is now repulsive to the Philistines. Then the troops were summoned to join Saul and Gilgal. So stop there for just a second. So far, so good. Great things are happening for the king right off the bat. We get an idea that he summoned the army. In fact, he's so confident he sent some guys home. His son, this great military leader, young man of great strength and character, he runs out and he attacks some of the Philistines, the arch enemy of the Israelites. And he defeats them. And he, Saul hears about the news and he, and he, he makes an announcement. 
He gets on the PA system and says, hey, listen to what's happening. He tweets it out, and everybody in Israel retweets it. It's all over Facebook, and all the Israelites like it. He sends a mass email to constant contact. He's got them knowing that Israel is right where they need to be. He says, Saul has now attacked the Philistine garrison, and all Israel is now repulsive to the Philistine. We've got them. Then the troops were summoned. Here they gathered the army together. So far, so good. Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel. Look what they have. Saul has how many men? Can you add it up? How many has he got? 3,000. Pretty simple. Look what the, the uh, Philistines have. 3,000 chariots. Just to start. Chariots. 6,000 horsemen. Okay? And troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. More than 3,000. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth And now The men of Israel, look at this, saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. Some versions say a tight spot. Think? We got 3,000 guys. They got that many chariots. Twice as many horse guys. And we can't even count their soldiers. So, they hid in caves. Look at this. Thickets among rocks and in holes and cisterns. It'd be like, they know there's a door back here. Like me trying to get inside the pulpit. I'm going to hide where nobody ever looked for me. Here they are, scared to death. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan in the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. You get the sense of urgency here? They're, they thought everything was okay. They're just going about battle. They figure we've got the Philistines right where we want them. In fact, Saul sent some guys home. And then they see the Philistines, what they really have, and realize that Jonathan may have defeated a small part of it. There's a whole lot more where that came from. So he's outnumbered. He's outmanned. It's advantaged Philistines in every single way. And the urgency mounts for King Saul. Picture him as he looks around. He's just made this great announcement that we are going to be victorious. And he looks around, and everybody's hiding under a rock in a hole in a cistern. They just jump down the well. No way to get back out. They just jump down there because they're scared. So the army figures out what a tight spot they're in. They don't want to be slaughtered, obviously. So they run away. They hide. And Saul's sense of urgency grows. It's not looking good for the king, for his army, for the nation that he represents. I wonder where you have found recently a sense of urgency in your life. I believe there are so many of us who live that way all the time. Everything is just pressing in on you. Maybe you've caused some other, maybe you haven't, but maybe in relationships as you try to establish them, as you try to maintain them, as you try not to lose them. Maybe in relationships you feel a lack of resources or, or ability or time. And you know that it's urgent. Maybe you're an unmarried person you say, I desperately want to find someone who will love me and who I can love, and I feel like I'm running out of time. Maybe you're in a tough marriage, and you say, if something doesn't change soon, it's going to be over. <coughs> Maybe relationships are creating a sense of urgency. Maybe for you, it's obligations and commitments. Maybe you have too many. Maybe you don't like the ones that you do have. Maybe you feel like their demands are pressing in on you. Everything is closing in don't feel like you have the resources or the tools or the time to address your obligations. 
to make those demands. Maybe it's a job for you. Your sense of urgency is, I've lost my job, or I can't find a job, and I desperately need one. I've got to be able to make money. I need to provide for my family, or I need to be able to pay the bills, and your sense of urgency is growing. Or maybe you have a job, and you simply hate it. And you say, this has got to change. I'm running out of time for this to happen. Or maybe you're just trying to hold your job, and it feels as if it's slipping through your fingers. You say, I'm just this close to losing. I'm just this close to getting fired. Maybe you feel like you're running out of time, running out of patience, and it creates a sense of urgency. Maybe for you it's money. Maybe you don't have enough. Maybe you don't know what to do with what you have. You know, a few, few things create a sense of urgency like money issues. And I would imagine that everybody here has experienced that from time to time. Things tend to close in on you. Or maybe it's just other issues and problems that you need resolution to. You, maybe you say, what do I do? How do I handle it? People are angry with me. I, I'm struggling with this. There's pressure on me. Things are falling apart. I'm not sure what to do. You know, from where Saul stood, and maybe from where you stand today, everything was closing in on He thought things were going to be okay at the beginning. And then he looks out and he sees his enemies gathered around him. They needed something to happen. And maybe the same is true for you today. You came here with great urgency in one or more areas of your Urgency, first part of this progression, then leads to that. Second part. Look at, look at verse 7 again. Some of the Hebrews even crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with what? Feet. Imagine at this point, Saul, who's with these fighting men that he's gathered around him, he assumes that, okay, some of the other men of Israel have run away, and now they're hiding over here in this cistern and down in this well over here. But you guys are with him, right? <laughs> well, um, sort of. I mean, you know, we've got 3,000 guys that have got that many chariots. Uh, I can't outrun a chariot. And they've got 6,000 horsemen. And I can't even count their soldiers. So we're a little scared. You can imagine the doubt that begins to creep into their minds. Fear, of course, is typically associated and typically accompanied by lots of doubts. Saul, he begins to doubt as well, as we'll see. He begins to doubt God's promises, promise of victory, promise of protection for Israel. As we'll see, he, he even doubts God's commands. What we'll see in just a moment is Saul do something that only the prophets and the priests were supposed to do, not the kings. He begins to doubt God's program for things, God's organization of it all. The king was the political leader, but the prophet got it set up to tell the king what to do. He begins to doubt the outcome. They're scared, he's scared. We might lose this battle that we thought we would win. And he begins to doubt God's timing. Where is God? Doesn't he know that the army over there is already ready to fight us? Our sense of urgency is just like that as well. It can often lead to doubt in many cases. All the things we just talked about, relationships, whether it's dating, marriage, friendship, parenting, we feel a sense of urgency and we doubt whether God's ways are best. Maybe it's your job. I wonder, you might say, if, if God cares that I'm stuck here, if God cares that I don't have a job that I need, I, I wonder if he knows that I can't stand being here. I wonder if he knows how my boss treats me. Maybe he doesn't care. Because if he did, he'd do something about it. Maybe for you it's money. 
You see, I know the Bible says I'm, I'm supposed to be a generous giver, but I can't even afford to do that. I know I'm supposed to stay out of debt, but God isn't providing very many ways for me to do that. I need a little more money to stay out of debt. Maybe it's big decisions for you. God says, yeah, I should ask for wisdom, but I'm not getting any from him. I wonder if he's paying attention. God says I can trust him to show me what to do. I can't get anything right now from the Bible, from prayer, from godly people. I begin to doubt whether God is really there because he's just silent. Maybe other situations, you see the whole world maybe seems against you and God isn't maybe helping you so much. Maybe your schedule is full and there's no end in sight. And you thought God maybe would help you clear some of that space so that you wouldn't have to deal with all Maybe you, maybe I, like Saul, because of our sense of urgency, and as it grows, we begin to doubt God's promises, doubt his ways for things, doubt his commands, doubt his goodness, doubt his timing, doubt his care for us. We begin to doubt his awareness of our predicament or what the outcome will be. And the progression continues in the next part. Doubt, coming out of a sense of urgency, eventually leads to impatience. He waited, Saul waited for seven days, seven days for the appointed time that Samuel the prophet had set. Basically, Samuel said, I'll be back in seven days. We'll offer a sacrifice to God, then he'll go fight. So he waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserted. Picture that. Here's the king. Men are running and hiding. He's been told to wait for this one guy, this old prophet, who's probably going to hobble up. Here he comes with his cane and his long beard. He looks like somebody out of Lord of the Rings. And here he comes. And he's going to hobble up and, and perform some sacrifice. And then, okay, fine, all right, let's go. Now we can go into battle. All the guys, they are ready to go fight. And Samuel's nowhere to be found. Saul is becoming a little, patient, a little impatient. He had a deadline. He didn't want to wait any longer for God to do something. In fact, he'd already waited seven days. It says he waited seven days. That's what Samuel had told him to do. So maybe he feels like he's done his part. What about you and me? Do you feel like that you've done your part in all those areas we talked about? And now you're wondering where God is? I've done what I thought God wanted me to do. I've waited seven days, just like Saul right here. I've done what I feel like God has told me to do. Now, where is God? Maybe it's relationships or job or money or big decisions or whatever it is. You've done, you think, what God wanted you to do. Now, where is it? You're like Saul saying, you know what, this is, this is a big deal. I'm not sure what to do and I'm running out of power. There Saul stands with his arm, looking across at the immeasurable army of the other side. As his troops begin to desert him, he becomes impatient. And unfortunately, what we'll see is that his impatience led him to presumption. <clears throat> Verse 9. The troops are deserting him, so Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. Then he offered the burnt offering. Now, I told you a second ago, we're going to get to a part where the king steps out of bounds here. He does something here by offering this burnt offering to the Lord that only the priest or the prophet was supposed to offer. This was off limits to the king. He was the political leader, and yes, in a lot of ways, the spiritual leader. But he was not the man given the responsibility, nor the obligation, nor the privilege of offering these kinds of offerings to the Lord. So Saul, though, 
because of the urgency, because he doubts what God is doing, because he becomes impatient waiting on God to do something, he presumes it's okay for him to do whatever he needs to do in that moment. Just a he takes matters into his own hands, presuming that all that was needed was really just to jump through a few religious hoops and all would be okay. All God wants is a sacrifice, right? That's kind of what we're dealing with here. Guys, hang on just a second. Bring that to me. I'll take care of it. Look, we've got this. We need to move on because you can see the Philistine army. The same was nowhere to be found. Maybe the guy got lost on his way here. We've got to do something. I can handle a little religious ceremony and tradition, Psalm says, but not a problem. So he jumps ahead of what God wanted him to do. I wonder how your life and my life Where have you jumped ahead of God when he didn't seem to show up? I wonder, did you end or, or, or maybe not end or begin or not begin a certain relationship because you were impatient with God, unwilling to wait for his timing, his person? Maybe it was a job issue and you jumped ahead too fast. You took a job or didn't take a job or you quit one or you didn't quit one because you were unwilling to wait on God to answer your prayer. Saul presumed that all God wanted was just a, a nod of the hand, a tip of the cap, hey God, we got you, thank you so much. That everything would work out in the long run anyway, that's it's okay, it's not that big a deal. That his own pressing needs, his own sense of urgency, and his own predicament justified whatever he had to do to figure it out in the moment. There was really no way around it anyway. He had to do something because Saul and God, or Samuel and God, rather, certainly weren't going to do it. He also presumed that Having the input, the involvement of godly advisors was sort of overrated. Samuel is old anyway, who cares? So his obedience was sort of halfway. He waited seven days, but, but he didn't do what God told him to do. He presumed that he could do things his own way and it would be no big deal to God. And then look what happens next. His presumption leads to unraveling. It leads to everything unraveling. Look at verse 10. Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. I find some humor in that. I find God saying, it wasn't really that long that you needed one. And isn't it ironic? Saul says, I've waited long enough. Bring me the offering. We're going to take care of this so we can go and fight. And immediately as he's finishing up, here comes Samuel. Old Gandalf, here he comes with his canes, long white. Samuel scrolling up immediately as he finishes. Amazing how little time he was left to wait. And then here's what he says. Samuel asked him, verse 11, what have you done? Now this is not a question of, tell me what you, what you just did. I don't know what you just did. This is a smart aleck. What on earth did you just do? You ever ask your kids that? What, what was that? I never asked Saul answered. Look at his answer. When I saw that the troops were deserting me, here's his sense of urgency, and you didn't come within the appointed days, his doubt, and his, his impatience, and the Philistines were gathering at Micmac, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. I love the little religious stuff that he throws in there. So I forced myself to do the burnt offering. I'm, I'm really the victim here, he said. 
I'm really the noble hero for the nation because you weren't showing up, and, and I needed God's favor to go fight this battle, so I, I forced myself. It was hard. It's hard to take all the credit for everything, but I, I'll do it. Samuel's response, you have been He doesn't give Saul any opportunity whatsoever to to justify himself. Saul says, you know, I waited. You were late. It was urgent. I was running out of time. So I had to do something. All he did was describe the the progression of his disastrous decision. He just describes all the things that are coming back to your will. Samuel says you've acted foolishly. You know what those words mean? You're a moron. You're an idiot. You are stupid. What are you doing? Now, we don't like to think of God's holy prophets saying such things. That's what he's telling Saul. You're an idiot. What have you done? You've acted foolishly. Here's what he tells him. You have not kept the command which the Lord your God gave you. It begins to unravel even further. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. God was going to set up a dynasty for you, King Saul. Your sons... And their sons and their sons would have ruled forever. It begins to unravel. Because Samuel tells him, you're an idiot. You've rebelled against God. Even though you thought you were doing something religious, you didn't do it the way that God said to do it. You've rebelled against him. And you can see everything unraveling for Saul. Maybe you've been there. You've had that moment when you think, oh my goodness. I really messed this up. And he begins to see his credibility unraveling. He begins to see his leadership unravel. He certainly has already seen and will continue to see his army unravel. And his responsibility as the dynasty maker for, for, the, for the Israelite kingdom, his, his responsibility is unraveling. He's trying to hang on to it all. I forced myself to do this. I, I, I had to do something. He knows he messed up, but he doesn't really want to admit it or believe that it's true. Maybe you've experienced just that. You've had urgency which has led you to doubt, which has led you to impatience, which has led you to presumption. And maybe now you're dealing with the unraveling of it all. And here's the sad part for King Saul. The unraveling leads to something that's very permanent. The unraveling leads to permanence. Look at verse 13. You have been foolish, he says, and I kept the command which the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But now, verse 14, your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man loyal to him. <clears throat> Someone, some versions say, a man after what? His own heart. Who's he talking about? Like King David. It's interesting. He says, the Lord has found a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him already. Appointed him as ruler over his people because you did not do. Verses we've done today. But I have had the wind taken out of my sails before, and you have too. You've had dreams that you thought this is the way it's going to be, and they've been dashed and robbed and destroyed, and maybe even by your own hand. But you know that feeling. When you realize that that decision has altered the rest of your life. That's where Saul's Your legacy will die with you. Your son, Jonathan, 
this great young man, he will not take over the state. His disastrous decision has affected not only him, his entire family, and even threatens the security of the nation. Every decision has some permanent aspect. Every decision we make. Young people, if you're here this morning, listen to me. Every decision that you make, every single one, can alter the rest of your life. Now, I don't say that to scare you, because some of the best decisions you make right now will alter your life in so many great ways. I'm not trying to scare you, or shake you up, or make you feel awful. But you need to be sober-minded. The decisions you are making now, as a very young person, will alter, for better or for worse, the rest of Relationships, I'll be honest with you, right? It's not that best. Who you decide to befriend and allow to influence you? Who you decide to date? Who you decide to give yourself to? Who you decide to marry? Those are the biggest decisions. And I wonder, I wonder are you considering? Parents, other folks, we need to realize that the decisions we make not only affect us, but they affect our children and grandchildren, even if they're not born. Consider that for a second. Every decision has some permanent aspect. You and I can each, if we evaluate our lives today, can each look at our own lives and see that in many cases, some of the issues we're dealing with can be traced back to a decision we made years ago. A choice that we made. Whatever it may be. Good or bad. Many of the things that we're dealing with now. Many of the problems that you have. Not all, but many of the problems you have can be traced back maybe to a disastrous decision in which you follow this progression just like we see in King Saul's The decisions that we make have in each of them some aspect of permanence. And what's sad here, and we'll look at these verses very quickly. Beginning in verse 15, the cycle begins again with more urgency. Saul will never bust out of this. Samuel went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Saul registered the troops with him who were what? Six how many did he start with? 3,000. 2,400 guys are gone. These urgency won't go away. Saul and his son Jonathan and the troops were with him were staying in Geba of Benjamin. The Philistines were camped at Big Mash. And then the Philistines, 17 and 18, send out three different raiding parties, and they're just harassing them over and over. Then look at verse 19. No blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. Now that's important because here's why. Because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So the, the Philistines have them over a barrel. They charge them lots of money for this stuff to get sharpened and so on. And then look at verse 22. So on the day of battle, not a sword or spear could be found in the hand of any of the troops who were with Saul and John. Only Saul and his son Jonathan have weapons. As I said, this cycle is going to repeat itself. Saul again faced with a sense of urgency. And you know what he does? He'll get impatient. He'll make unwise decisions. He'll unravel on him and cause permanent effects over and over and over again. He will never truly learn the lesson that God wanted him to learn. He'll never truly repent from operating on his own program, and eventually he'll lose everything. I wish the story had a happy ending for Saul. Eventually he loses his own son, he loses his mind, he loses the support of the people, he loses his reputation, and he even loses his own life by his own all because he never fully repented and turned to the Lord. He 
never busted out of the cycle, but simply perpetuated itself until his decisions became so permanent that it destroyed him. And that may not be very encouraging to you, but I hope it's very sobering this morning. Especially for those who are still in the process of making life-altering decisions. So here's the lesson. You've been waiting on it all morning. Get your bulletin back down. Wake up your neighbor. Here we go. The lesson from an impatient king is, is simply this. Many of our greatest mistakes happen because of our refusal to wait on God. See how much you guys were waiting? But you had to wait. See how they can see that? Look at them. See how it just goes together. Hey, wait for that. Wait on that. <coughs> Saul's problem in 1 Samuel 13 is what? He was unwilling to wait on God. And for some of us here today, that's our biggest problem. Relationally, vocationally, in different situations, with money, with parenting, whatever it may be. Most, if not all, maybe just many of the problems that you're enduring now are because of an unwillingness to wait on God in a lot of situations. But I believe for you and for me, and certainly for Saul, there's much more than just impatience. There's something going on inside of Saul that was deeper. Something that was behind the scenes. His reason for not waiting on God, he didn't feel like it was necessary. He thought he was his own authority, his own boss. He was a king, for crying out loud. Who was anybody, especially an old prophet, could tell him what to do? He was entitled to make his own decisions. He wanted to be in control. He was afraid of what wouldn't happen if he didn't do something right then. He was content simply to lean on his own resources rather than on those of God. He felt his disobedience was just a minor issue, not a big deal. I, I forced myself to do it. I had to do something. And he was unwilling to submit himself to God, and that was his real, really his biggest problem. His impatience was simply a sign of a greater issue. And I wonder, do you and I see Saul in this? This week, I want to encourage you and, and, and hopefully help you to be sober-minded, to beware of the tyranny of there will be lots of things that demand that you do something right now. Demand that you solve it. Demand that you figure it out. Demand that you commit. There will be lots of urgent things this week. Beware of how that tries to control you. And as you're doing that, monitor any doubt of God's word that comes into your mind. Refuse to take matters into your own hands through your own impatience and your presumption. And submit yourself to the one who lived perfectly. Realize that Jesus Christ faced lots of urgent situations, but never once doubted God. Never once grew impatient. Never once presumed to know more than his heavenly Father. Never once did he follow that path, that progression of his master's decision. He lived a perfect life to show us how, and to show us what life is possible, what, what kind of life is possible as he lives through us. So submit yourself to the one who lived perfect who died to forgive your imperfection, and who was raised to allow you the chance to start all over again. Your life may be right now one disastrous decision after another. Praise God that Jesus wipes the slate. Gives you a chance to start over. I encourage you this week to wait on God. To trust Him. But it's not something you can do on your own. You need the new life that only Jesus can you don't need a patch, you're tired. You need a brand new 
wait on God this week and trust Him. Maybe this morning you can simply ask Him to change the tide and give you a new start. Would you bow your heads with me? We want to close our time this morning by just giving you a, a few moments of silence, honestly. You know the urgent situations in your life. You know the areas in which God has spoken to you this morning. You say, God, I'm struggling with that. Struggling to trust you, to wait on you, to do things your way. I'm not even sure I know what that means. Maybe you say, you know, it's a deeper issue really for me because I've not submitted my life to Jesus Christ. And maybe this morning, right where you sit, you'd say, Lord, for the very first time, I give it all to you. I recognize my sin. I know it keeps me from you. I know it deserves your judgment. But I recognize the death of Jesus Christ as full payment, as the only payment. And I want your forgiveness. I recognize the resurrection of Christ as my promise of brand new life that starts today. And you'd say, today, Lord, I give it all to you. I submit every part of me to you. Maybe today, for the very first time, it'd be your prayer. I'm going to give you a couple moments of silence, simply to talk to God. Submit yourself to Him. Tell Him about the urgent issues in your life. Ask Him for wisdom. And make it commitment. special privilege, as you know, to have her from Mexico to come here to Murray, Kentucky. We have a Mexico, Kentucky, by the way. So you're not too far from home. But it's been a privilege to have her here, and I, I want to, I just want to pray for her. All I'm going to ask is those who are kind of sitting around, if you would, just kind of put an arm around her, close in if you, if you would. Others want to, uh, to just put a hand on her shoulder. Church, I'd like for you just to join your hearts with me in prayer. And when I say amen, we'll be dismissed, all right? We won't have a closing song this morning. We'll close with a prayer for Mr. Body. But uh, join your hearts in prayer with me for our Lord, first for all of us, we are thankful for the fact that your word speaks to us. The Bible has something relevant to say every single time we open. We thank you, Lord, that it's not dead, that it's not just an ancient book written for ancient ancient book, a timeless truth for all eternity, written for folks in every age. And we thank you for that. Drive home the truth of the Bible we've seen this morning. Drive it home in our hearts. Sink it deep into our lives and may it bear fruit beginning now. Lord, we thank you for us to find. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that you've given all of us here at Elm Grove and certainly the Hubbard family 
to be able to be her host for the last year. We thank you for that special privilege. Yeah, we pray for her as she leaves. Lord, I, I simply want to pray that the prayer that comes from this progression, Lord, I, I pray for the urgent situation that she'll face, those things that will be so pressing on her, that I pray that it would not lead to doubt, but would lead to faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for any doubts that arise, that you would show her from your scripture what real truth is. Lord, I pray that she would not become impatient with you, but would wait and trust you. Lord, that she would never presume to know more than you know and take matters into her own hands. Lord, that she would trust your word and trust your guidance. And Lord, may things never unravel for her. May they never become permanent decisions that cannot be taken back. But God, I pray that if they do, that you would show her the truth of your grace and your love. To give her a new start each and every time. We thank you that that truth is not just something that we throw out at church, but certainly, Lord, it is personal and applicable to each and every day of our lives. And we ask your blessings on us to find it for safe travel, for her family as she returns home, and they see in her, Lord, a young lady who's been changed. And we thank you again for the privilege of having been with her being able to celebrate with her as she opens a new chapter in life. We thank you so much. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for your death, for your resurrection, and for your life, that perfect life that now can live through each and every one of us. We thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name.